This is Isaiah 32, 12 to 20. <clears throat> Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vines, and for the land of my people, a land overgrown with thorns and briars. Yes, mourn for all houses of merriment and for this city of revelry. The fortress will be abandoned, the noisy city deserted. Citadel and watchtower will become a wasteland forever, the delight of donkeys, a pasture for flocks, till the spirit is poured on us from on high, and the desert becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field seems like a forest. The Lord's justice will dwell in the desert, his righteousness live in the fertile field. The fruit of that righteousness will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. Though hail flattens the forest and the city is leveled completely, how blessed you will be, sowing your seed by every stream and letting your cattle and donkeys range free. All right. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Carol, for reading. Did you all hear the um, transition in the middle of that text? Going from uh, thorns and briars and mourning to fertile fields and peace and rest, confidence forever. Did you hear what the difference maker was? Verse 15 says, Till the Spirit is poured on us from on high. And this morning I want to speak about the Holy Spirit and the book of Mark. I want to start with a, a, a Holy Spirit story from my life in the past uh, month. Uh, well, actually, six months ago. I saw a church in Texas announce a conference about um, Christian-Muslim relations. And it actually, it was a, a meeting. It was very specific. It was a meeting for pastors, imams, and rabbis in Dallas, near Dallas, Texas. And for whatever reason, when I read that little announcement, my heart skipped a beat. And I thought, wow, the Holy Spirit is prompting me that I should should probably go to that event. Um, and then I set it aside. And time kept moving on, and that was like maybe last November, December, January, February, March. I went to the conference on uh, March 6, 7, and 8, and it was a good conference. I was kind of like, oh, it's good, but I'm not really sure why I'm here until... Fifteen minutes before I was going to leave, I met someone who, it suddenly struck me, the Lord brought me here because I needed to meet this young man, uh, a young Muslim guy, and um, he spoke a few things to me that God subsequently used to, to open up new doors for me to have new relationships with Muslim leaders. Um, in a variety of places in the United States, and a, a new, a lot of new conversations with Muslims. 
So that was, I just want to give testimony. That was not my idea that I go to this conference so I could get this information to do this special thing. No. I went not knowing why, but I knew I was prompted by the Spirit to go. And I thought it was a bust until the last 15 minutes, and suddenly here was this moment, this encounter. I think the Holy Spirit works that way a lot, at least in my life. Um, so my job today is to sort of give a summary of discipleship in the book of Mark. And um, I note in my reading through Mark multiple times, at least 44 places where Jesus, where we see Jesus making disciples. 44 different ways we see Jesus making disciples. Or a lot of them are repetitions, but I just note, and, and I did some research um, in um, Bible study books and uh, Bible study websites, and a lot of people note that Mark is a book about discipleship what it means to follow Jesus. And um, I think there's two really key verses. So if you have your Bibles out, or if you want to get your phone out and look it up, Mark 3, verse 16 is one of the key verses for this entire study of discipleship. Mark 3, 16. It says here about Jesus that he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So first thing I learned from, from the study of discipleship in the book of Mark is that Jesus called his disciples so that they could be with him. Let that sink in a little bit. Jesus invited these disciples to be with him and so that he could send them out to preach and he wanted to give them authority over evil spirits so first lesson I get from the whole book of Mark and this is going to get reinforced over and over as we go through Mark disciples find out what it's like to be a disciple of Jesus by being with Jesus and, and throughout the book of Mark, the disciples spent a lot of time with Jesus. And the other key verse that, that, you, that is just critical to understanding discipleship in the book of Mark is chapter 8, verse 34. I think I preached a whole sermon on this passage, and I brought a large wooden cross in, and we had it over here, and a lot of you chose to write your name on a piece of paper and nail it onto that cross saying, I want to pick up my cross and follow Jesus. So Mark 8.34, you want to mark that or note that down. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. It's about denying self, taking up, the cro taking up your cross and following Jesus. And throughout the entire book of Mark, we have these images then of what it means or what it looks like to be a disciple or what it looks like in terms of how Jesus made disciples. And we might learn from that how we should be making disciples ourselves. 
Jesus invites people to follow him and to be with him. Jesus spends lots and lots and lots of time with his disciples walking. Imagine walking from uh, Nazareth to Jerusalem. Sort of like walking from Lancaster to Philadelphia. You get to spend a lot of time together. Anybody here ever done that? I, I have not. But Jesus did that journey multiple times with his disciples. And, and a lot of other long walks. Jesus uh, spent a lot of time praying with his disciples. A lot of time eating with his disciples. You read over and over, passage after passage about them eating together. Jesus did a lot of show and tell. Jesus is with the disciples in the temple in Jerusalem, and he sees a woman put some money in the offering basket, and Jesus says to his disciples, did you see that? Everybody else here gave out of their extra, but that woman, she gave everything she had to live on. Or another example is they're walking, and they come to a fig tree, and there's no fruit, and Jesus uh, curses the fig tree, and they come back the day, next day later, and it's shriveled. And it's an object lesson about a fruitless life. The fruitless life that the Pharisees were trying to put on people that wasn't producing any fruit. And so Jesus used the tree as an object lesson. Jesus took his disciples on uh, mountaintop retreats, and they did a lot of boating together. So I, kind of, I, would, I would have liked to be Jesus' disciple because of all those boats. Uh, minus the terrible storm and other details. In chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus has these disciples now, and then what does he do? He sends them out on a short missionary trip. They're all given an assignment. Mark 6, verse 7. Sent them out. And then in verse 30, chapter 6, they come back and they all do their missionary reports. And they tell Jesus what they did and what, what happened. It's interesting to me in 537 that not all disciples get the same kind of teaching. Uh, in, my, in, in 537, it's, um, was it Jairus' daughter? Oh, it's the raising of the dead girl, yeah. And... There's 12 disciples, but Jesus only takes Peter, James, and John into the room when he prays. So I find that really surprising that Jesus doesn't take all 12 in. And from that I thought, you know, well, the way Jesus disciples each one of us, we each have different things we need to learn at different times. And, and Jesus has a specific way he wants to disciple us. Uh, when Jesus' disciples were attacked for not... Uh, having their hands properly cleaned by the Pharisees, Jesus defends his disciples. And that makes me think of a time when I was discipling a man in Senegal, and false rumors went out that he had done X, Y, Z, and they weren't true. But someone had actually written a letter and sent it to missionaries and pastors all over Senegal that this guy had done something he had not done. And um, I... I said, I'm, and I wrote back to all those people and said, whatever was said here is not true. I'm defending this guy I'm discipling. Jesus defended his disciples. Jesus 
shares in chapter 8, verse 2, Jesus shares his motivation for why he's doing what he's doing. This is the feeding of the 5,000. And what does it say right before Jesus fed the 5,000? Jesus tells his disciples, the reason I'm doing this, this is chapter 8, verse 2, I'm doing this because I have compassion for these people. So Jesus wants us to be in on the motivation of why he's doing what he does. That's part of being his disciple, to understand the motivation. And Jesus demonstrated things over and over and over to his disciples. You know, it's pretty clear that Jesus' disciples didn't quite catch on. Over and over, Jesus tells them things, and they don't understand, and they ask him questions. And I think in verse 8, 17, he's, he, he, he's frustrated with them about that. Jesus is always honest with his disciples. The, the key verse I gave you, 834, is about counting the cost. It's not easy to be a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you'll have to take up your cross to follow me. Jesus was always honest with his disciples. Jesus mediated conflict between his disciples when they're arguing. That's 1040. Jesus used object lessons to train the disciples. I mentioned that already. Jesus warns his disciples that, that people will try to deceive them. 13.5. And in, in um, I was just going to read this one. The last one I have here, 14, verse 17. And I brought my Bible with small print. I'm having such a hard time reading it. Fourteen, verse 17. When Jesus returned to his disciples, he found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch with me for one hour? So here's an example of Jesus pleading with his disciples. And I, I wonder if Jesus ever pleads with you. Does Jesus plead with you to stay awake, to be alert to what he wants to teach you? So all that is sort of my introduction, summary of all the different ways I see Jesus making disciples and training his disciples, which is, they're lessons for us about discipleship. But I have a question. Where is the Holy Spirit in all this? In Mark 1.8, John the Baptist promises that Jesus will be the one to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. And in verse 12 of chapter 1, we see the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove. And in verse 13, the Spirit sends Jesus out into the desert. And really, after that, the whole rest of the book of the Mark, you don't see the Holy Spirit at all. There's two other tiny references. Jesus gives a, uh, uh, quotes a psalm and says that... that um, the Holy Spirit gave David those words, and um, in, in chapter 13, he, he mentions the Spirit to his disciples when he says, if you're arrested and taken into court, don't worry what you'll have to say. The, the Spirit will give you words. But other than that, 
no teaching about the Holy Spirit. If you pick up the Gospel of Luke, it's just full, whole chapter on, on how the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' teaching. But Mark doesn't have it. And yet, we know, if, we, if we're students of the Bible, we know that everything Jesus did was by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. The Holy Spirit came upon him. And throughout Mark, you do see Jesus doing miracles, healings. And you see the, the, the Pharisees attacking Jesus. And they even challenge him once and say, Jesus, you're doing all these things by the power of Beelzebub. They're saying, Jesus, you're, you actually have an evil spirit. That's how you're doing this. Well, that was, that's just direct opposition to the fact that Jesus is actually ministering out of the power of the Holy Spirit. Although Mark doesn't say so, Jesus, in, in, in actual words, Jesus does all of, all of his ministry, teaching, healing, and miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in, the, in Mark chapter 16, at the very, very end, there's a hint. The disciples receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They drive out demons. They speak in tongues. And they're protected from poison. They pray for the sick, and they're healed. They do all the things that Jesus did, full of the power of the Holy Spirit. So although it is somewhat veiled in the text, everything Jesus does is by the power of the Spirit, and the disciples, they don't get it. Remember I said they, Jesus does all these discipleship things with them, and they keep arguing about things about who gets to sit at Jesus' right or left hand, and, and they ask him why, and they say we didn't understand. The disciples don't get it until Pentecost. And Pentecost, you'll be celebrating in a few weeks. So really, in Mark, I see the disciples are sort of bumbling along. They really want to follow Jesus. They're right there with him all the time. But they don't quite ever quite figure out how to do it because they don't have the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. I read a quote by C.S. Lewis. I don't know the exact place where it's found, and I don't remember it perfectly. But C.S. Lewis said, nobody knows how hard it is to be good until they've tried. And I think we all share a common failing. We try to be good. We try really hard. Um, we attempt to live as disciples by obeying the teaching of Jesus and putting it into practice on our own strength. And in my own personal life, this was a shipwreck for my faith. When I was 18, 19, I found out how hard it is to be good and how much I couldn't do all the things I had been taught to do and I think we Mennonites, I grew up in a Mennonite church, and my grandparents are Mennonite, and my great-grandparents. I think this is one of our particular uh, challenges. 
We love discipleship. We talk about following Jesus. We, wanna, we want to um, live, out, live our lives according to the Sermon on the Mount. And sometimes forget the message of grace and healing and, and uh, strength that, that of our salvation that, that only comes through Jesus and Jesus' cross and resurrection and then Jesus filling us with the Holy Spirit. If I think about my own story, I say I, I, very, I, I shipwrecked in my faith is because I realized I could not really follow Jesus on my own strength and I had no idea where to turn to learn how to follow Jesus. As far as I remember in my childhood, I didn't receive any teaching about the Holy Spirit. I didn't receive any invitation to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I didn't receive any teaching or example of people showing me what it meant to live a life filled with the Spirit and following uh, Jesus because the Spirit was giving life and uh, words of encouragement and strength and uh, power to overcome evil. So trying to live like a disciple without the Holy Spirit uh, doesn't work. Acts 1.8 says, this is the promise of Pentecost. Jesus told the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, they're, they're meeting together in the upper room. They've been meeting and praying, meeting and praying all these days since Jesus um, was taken up into heaven and says that a violent wind blew through the room and there were tongues of fire that fell on people's heads and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and it made so much noise that people in town all around came running to see what was going on. So my invitation to you today is would you like to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Would you like the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Would you like that anointing, that help that will take you from having to try really hard to be good to delighting in the fact that Jesus, your Savior, has poured out on you a gift that makes it possible to be his disciple. Because on your own strength, on my own strength, I can't do it. I need the help of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah, chapter 32, he, that Carol read earlier, Isaiah pictured the land, his images were of the land overgrown with thorns and briars, a wasteland where the cities are abandoned without God's presence and without the Spirit. And that is the state of our lives without the Holy Spirit. And then, in verse 15, Isaiah portrays this. He says, till the, Holy, till the, till the Spirit is poured out from on high, he wrote. When the Spirit is poured out from on high, the desert becomes a fertile field. 
think of the desert as not desert of, of uh, the Sahara Desert, but this is a, think of the desert of your own heart. The desert becomes a fertile field, and justice and righteousness dwell there. Peace and quiet and confidence and rest. You have a secure home, and you're undisturbed. Would you like to live that way? Would you like to live this way every day? Filled with the Holy Spirit so that you are at rest inside and, and you're able to interact with the outside world in a confident and peaceful way. If so, ask for an outpouring of the Spirit. Ask. Jesus said you have not because you ask not. Ask for the Holy Spirit and he's going to pour it out on you in abundance. And I want to suggest as I close here that we ask in two ways. In a minute, I'm going to invite you to raise your hand if you'd like to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I want to pray for, the, for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so if you want, you can raise your hand. And I'll pray for that. But also I'm aware that we also need to do business with God in our own prayer closets. We need time alone with God to repent and confess our sins. That's part of asking for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in your life. If you desire to live with this, this powerful gift from God that Jesus wants to pour out on you, remember John the Baptist said in the beginning of Mark, Jesus is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's Mark 1.8. So in your prayer closet at home, you and God alone, you, you, can, you can confess and repent. You can lament and mourn for your sin and your failing. And then you can ask for renewal. Then you can ask for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So I think there's so many things in, 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 in our life as disciples of Jesus that have an outward and an inward dimension. Outwardly, I want to say loud and clear, yes, I want an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I long for that. And deep inside, personally and quietly, away from everybody, is also a really key piece. Me and God together and me recognizing my sinfulness, mourning over that, asking for forgiveness and healing and saying, would you pour out fresh spirit power in my life today? We need both of those things. We need the whole body together and we need the personal quiet time alone with Jesus as well. Both need to happen if you're going to find this outpouring. Both need to happen if you're going to be a, a fruitful disciple in Jesus' kingdom. So, there I'm going to close. Uh, the worship team, if you want to come, you can. I am going to um, lead us in prayer. 
And I do invite you, if you would like, to raise your hand if you'd like to be baptized in the Spirit, if you're asking for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, I am delighted to be with this church. I find them beautiful, delightful people longing to follow you. I want to pray for your blessing on them. This morning, I want to ask you to pour out your Holy Spirit on this congregation. Thank you for all the hands I see raised. I ask you, Lord, for your anointing to fall upon this church and on each heart. I trust you, Jesus. I know that when you say you're going to pour out your Holy Spirit, it's because it's a good gift. It's a good gift. It's going to bring life to every heart and every home. And I ask you, Jesus, to pour fresh spirit life into each one who raised their hand this morning, into each one who couldn't raise their hand but wants to inside. They wish they could. Let your anointing fall upon us, Jesus. I myself am raising my hand because I want your anointing too. Come, Lord Jesus, give us your Holy Spirit. You're welcome here, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.